Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. On this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when on this planet these days, uh, just about everything can happen. And as we've said now for years, it no longer is confined to between the wee hours of the morning and dawn. It's uh, kind of 24-7. We have a really intriguing show for you tonight. Scott Walter is our guest, um, his colleague and uh, uh, tour guide um, uh, colleague, uh, Hallie Ramsey, unfortunately cannot be with us. Uh, she'll be with us probably when we have Scott back in uh, in August sometime. They're doing another tour over the United States and North America, and we will probably be touching base with them then. So uh, uh, Hallie is still in Scotland, and we wish her well. She had a tour sometime this morning, and uh, so we will obviously be accommodating her schedule given that she has been delayed. We do have uh, Barbara Honiger with us for the uh, full show. And in the third hour, we're going to be joined by Georgia Lambert. And uh, Scott and I are going to have some really interesting times discussing archaeology. But the start of the conversation, well, let me, let, let me not get ahead of where we are, because there's many breaking things happening rather simultaneously, which is kind of the subject of tomorrow night's show with Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert again. And we're going to, well, I'll, I'll kind of give you a little preview at the end of tonight's show about uh, uh, tomorrow. Before we get into tonight, I, I do want to make one uh, apology to my audience and to my guests of last Saturday. I lost my cool, I lost my temper, and I should never do that. Um, for those of you who may not have heard the show, uh, I did tell two people uh, rather emphatically that it was my show and I would determine what went on it. So let me give you the context. I was not trying to talk over anyone. I was not trying to silence anyone, <clears throat> just the opposite. Uh, I had two individuals who insisted for some bizarre reason that there were areas that I was not supposed to go, that there were subjects I was not on this show to bring up specifically I mentioned the name of Donald Trump, and that's what, of course, initiated such extraordinary reaction. I don't understand it. We've had politicians before, going back decades, centuries. No one has triggered the high sensitivities of people like the mention of Donald Trump. And the reason I brought him up is because, remember, Back when uh, the president had just been elected in 2016, we initiated a project, I initiated a project, to put our enterprise mission imaging research of artifacts on the moon and Mars in front of the new president of the United States. I used a go-between, someone in New York who has uh, known Donald Trump for something like 40 years and has known me for somewhat less of a period of time, but I was able to create, with the help of Kinthea and Tim and all the rest of the imaging team, a really remarkable video called the Presidential Briefing. And that was sent through back channels directly from the Enterprise mission to the new president of the United States. And what I said on the show last Saturday, which seemed to trigger a really extraordinary, and I frankly think over the top reaction, where these two individuals kept telling me I couldn't bring up Donald Trump because he wasn't relevant. Um, again, this is my show. I determine what's relevant, and almost everything is relevant given the extraordinary times we are going through. And as we've said on countless programs, that is not a coincidence. That is not an accident. People are kind of dissolving in all different directions because in our model, the change of the physics and its impact directly on consciousness. And if you want an example of over-the-top reactions, both on my guest part and on my part, just listen to toward the tail end of uh, last Saturday night show. Again, I apologize to the audience. Um, I did not mean for you to uh, experience that, but then I didn't anticipate that anybody would try to tell me on my show what I can talk about. I mean, imagine, um, I've been on every imaginable television and radio show 
that you can think of, including uh, uh, Johnny Carson. Can you imagine me as a guest on Carson telling him, telling Johnny from the couch, from that chair between the couch and the desk, that, well, we can talk about certain things, but if you bring up so-and-so, I'm going to walk out. I mean, this is unthinkable before this present era. So that was the context in which I made the rather important point that I do not permit censorship. I mean, I've had people on, I've had subjects on that I totally, totally disagree with. But as I've said many times, I'm a firm believer in the First Amendment. There's a reason why it's the First Amendment and why the second one comes second. And so I will insist on a fair airing of all issues and I certainly will not be said uh, talked to on the show about what I can talk about and what I can't. So sorry for taking a few minutes at the top here, but uh, I felt we needed to clear the air, and uh, I hope I have done so. Obviously, if you have any response, there is an open line of communication in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage of the other side of midnight. There is a very nice uh, uh, show thingy which says contact us. It's about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine down. So you can reach us there on cell phones, I'm not quite sure, or smartphones uh, where it is, but uh, send me a note. Um, I am a firm believer in the First Amendment. Be that as it may, um, for yo those of you who are new to the show, we have a lot of visuals tonight, so I need to direct you to Radio with Pictures, which is the section of the program where we uh, display links and videos and images and art and all kinds of things that are relevant to the show. If you go to the other side of midnight tonight and you click on tonight's banner, which says very prominently there at the top of the home page, um, Scotland unearthed, and it has the pictures of uh, Scott Walter and Haley Ramsey and Barbara Honiger. Again, I said that uh, Haley could not make it tonight, but we we kind of figured we leave her picture up, and her bio is further down in the website. So if you want to kind of check out uh, who Haley Ramsey is, and anticipation of her coming on the show sometime, as I said, probably in August, uh, you can get a kind of a head start. So you're on the banner, you click on the banner on the home page, that will take you to the guest page. Click on My Fast Items, which is a link under that banner on the guest page, that will take you to my section of Radio Pictures. And again, as we've begun for several weeks now, um, the um, news items tonight, we're leading with this remarkable unmanned mission to the moon called Capstone which was launched on the 28th of June and is taking a very, 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 very slow boat to China. If you look at that, um, that diagram to the right of the uh, headline, that's the orbit that the Capstone spacecraft, this 55-pound microwave-sized uh, 12U CubeSat, is taking en route to the moon. As you can see, it leaves and then it makes this extraordinary orbit going almost a million miles out before it sweeps back in through the solar system beyond the orbit of the moon and then rendezvous up there uh, kind of at the uh, uh, 930 position if you can think of the orbit of the moon looked at uh, like this as a clock with midnight at the top and six at the bottom and nine being to the left. So why this extraordinary orbit and why will it take the Capstone mission something like four months to cross a mere quarter of a million miles, a distance that, of course, the Apollo astronauts crossed in three days? The answer is energy. Moving in space, changing orbits, requires energy. And at the current level of technology, that means rockets. That means rocket fuel. That means mass. The more fuel, the more mass. So what the um, computer experts at JPL and other parts of NASA figured out using supercomputers some years ago is there are a series of orbits that are very, very, very low energy between the Earth and finally orbiting the moon. But you trade energy for time. Instead of taking three days, it will take them four months 
with several tweaking burns or mid-course corrections, little tiny thruster uh, burps, which will kind of shift the trajectory to do exactly what that extraordinary orbit looks like it's doing, which is surfing the three-dimensional moving gravitational fields of the sun, the earth, and the moon. And since all these bodies are constantly moving relative to each other, and they all have significant in the Earth-Moon system gravitational influences, the art form of trading time for energy literally involves surfing the gravity fields, the changing gravity fields of these three objects primarily. There's a little tiny smidgen of noise from the other planets and the big guys and all that, but primarily it's these three objects constantly moving relative to each other to create this unusual capability where you can surf for almost no energy from one field to the next field to the same field to the sun's field back to the lunar field and the ultimate goal is in four months on november 13th the capstone spacecraft will be inserted into its uh, final orbit which is a very bizarre orbit that we won't describe tonight but it's the orbit that the gateway uh, lunar space station which is essential for the artemis mission returning to the moon and ultimately building a lunar base at the south pole all of this is dependent on the success of the capstone mission which is basically testing out this bizarre orbit before gateway follows it in a couple of years to the moon with that all out of the way uh keep your eye on capstone there's some very unusual properties we're going to talk about in the subsequent weeks as we get closer um moving on to item number two we have of course been doing updates since it was launched uh, in december on christmas day of last year the webb telescope is on station in its own halo orbit about a million miles behind the earth when viewed from the sun and it is ready the instruments have all been commissioned i think there's one left they're working on and i thought it would be kind of interesting to compare item number two a photograph of a model of the webb space telescope on the lawn uh, at Goddard, the Goddard Space Flight Center, which, of course, was the center where I was a consultant for many years. Those people all out in front of this model are members of the uh, Webb Space Telescope team. That's not all the members. There are members scattered around the country at contractors, universities, and all that. But that's primarily the Goddard team. And you can see the stunning size of this telescope that we have put into orbit with a mirror, that's that gold hexagonal thingy kind of sticking up in the middle of the mylar sheets. That mirror is 21 feet in diameter, not inches, feet, which is why when we get to finally see some amazing imagery, which will be, I believe, next Wednesday on the 12th, you are in for a treat, a stunning treat, and then the treats will just keep on coming. Item number three. While all this is going on, of course, we're keeping an eye open on the Artemis first moon mission, which will be launched sometime in late August, maybe into early September. It will be an unmanned full-up mission with the SLS uh, uh, Saturn V follow-on moon rocket, on top of which will be the Orion spacecraft and the European Space Agency service module. And this will fly probably, uh, again, late August on a two-week mission around the moon in lunar orbit, taking lots and lots of pictures, testing all kinds of systems, stressing the Orion spacecraft uh, as one can only do in space. And so that is coming up, and we're going to be watching very carefully. Now, in this envelope of political decision-making vis-a-vis the moon. And remember, as a kind of a wild card, we still have that weird double crater that nobody, either NASA nor the intelligence community of the entire planet has been able to come up with a satisfactory explanation of who hit the moon with what and why, if they did, won't they fess up, given that there's no obvious overt military value in keeping something secret that's just gone splat 
in front of the entire world. Well, whoever launched it is remaining mum. Remember, my boat is that it was not anybody from Earth. It was actually extraterrestrials as way of a warning, as a message that only those that have the code key can understand. And since we're not supposed to, what we say does not count. But in the same time frame, suddenly, the current head of NASA, the current administrator of NASA, came out with a statement you know, a few days ago, which has been picked up now by all the news services, the networks, the wire services, social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, because Nelson, Bill Nelson, the administrator of NASA, warned China and warned the United States about China that they are planning to build a lunar base with the Russians to, quote, occupy the moon with the heavy implication that if they do this, they will somehow prohibit other nations, including the United States, from even building a moon base, let alone landing, because they will, quote, own the moon. I mean, this is all really phantasmagorical, and one has to wonder, what is it we're not seeing? What is the part of the conversation that the administrator of NASA is not kind of letting us in on for why he should warn the Western European nations that are uh, collaborating with NASA on Artemis, that he should warn the collaborators on the space station, our own space station, ISIS, which of course includes the Russians, and why he should be warning the Chinese, who by law, enacted by uh, Congress several years ago, we are, we meaning the United States, meaning NASA, is enjoined by law from cooperating in any way, shape, or form with China in space. So why is NASA suddenly warning that Chinese could be planning to, quote, own the moon? Well, there's the mainstream answer, and then there's our answer. And our answer, of course, has to do with what's waiting on the moon for anybody who actually sets up a permanent presence. Because as you know, in our model, there's an extraordinary amount of ancient stuff built by not one, but several ET civilizations. One of those civilizations, or more than one of those eras, could have actually been a high-tech version of the human race that came to technology long time ago, millions of years, hundreds of thousands of years, of which we have no knowledge. But when we get to the moon and we find the libraries, we may in fact uh, find a whole tableau of hidden history of which we are totally unaware at the moment. It just seems to me that the current head of NASA warning China about wanting to occupy and own the moon is kind of like overkill. I mean, what are, what are the Chinese and the Russians going to do? Take up missiles and shoot down Earth spacecraft? That, of course, would trigger World War III, so that's not viable. So what is it that Nelson was really warning China and Russia about? Obviously, we're not going to answer that this morning, but uh, until we do our next space show and bring new evidence to the table, just kind of think about that. Why is the head of NASA warning China about wanting to own and occupy the moon? Could there be something there that would be worth owning? Think about it. Okay, item number five. As all of this is unfolding in Washington and between NASA and the Chinese and between NASA and the Chinese and the Russians, um, Elon Musk is doing something very interesting. He just rolled his Starship prototype to the launch pad there in uh, Boca Chico, Texas, in preparation for an orbital test flight, which if he had his way, could occur in July, and if the FAA uh, has their way, will probably slip into August. But again, in that same time frame, and this is the same time frame as Artemis is supposed to depart Earth and also head for the moon, and of course, um, uh, SpaceX has now been put under contract as part of Artemis. It is designing and building the lander system for the astronauts going to the moon on the Artemis uh, vehicle, and of course uh, 
that's going to be a starship. So, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we have all these players involved in the space business, and some of them really don't like each other, and um, that's where we're going to leave it there. So we're following all these stories as, as we get a more firm commitment date for the uh, uh, Earth orbital prototype typical launch of Starship. We will obviously let you know. And wouldn't it be really cool if it's on a weekend? Turning to more mainstream news, as you all are obviously aware, the former prime minister, the longest serving prime minister of Japan uh, in history, post-World War II, uh, was assassinated uh, a couple days ago in a very bizarre uh, occurrence. I mean, who can think of why you would want to kill one of the most popular and effective uh, international uh, politicians in a very, very long time. Uh, Shinzo Abe had rescued the Japanese economy from oblivion uh, many, many years ago. Um, he came back from political oblivion himself, ran again after uh, resigning many years ago, won and became the longest uh, serving prime minister in Japan's history. And then someone a couple of days ago killed him. Given that I am suspicious of all of these things that are going on in the international arena right now, against the backdrop of official government admission with the setting up of, a, of an office in the Pentagon that UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them this Thursday, they are real and they are somehow uh, playing cat and mouse with the U.S. military. Well, when this was brought to the attention of Japan some years ago, uh, the Abe government went from the position of not even acknowledging that UFOs were real to the defense establishment in Japan setting up, just like the Pentagon, an office with orders that the Japanese military, if they encounter this kind of phenomenon, they are supposed to A, take lots of pictures, and B, they are supposed to report it up the chain of command. I just can't help but wondering, is Abe's assassination somehow connected with Japan's sudden recognition of the reality and the necessity to investigate UFOs. Uh, do not have an answer tonight, but be that as it may, we will follow these stories. Now, before we get to my guests, I want to bring up one final mainstream news uh, segment, and that is a couple, three days ago, America's Stonehenge, the so-called uh, Georgia Guidestones, which appeared, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago mysteriously in Georgia, um, we we're going to talk in the detail about what they entail, but they were taken out with a very interesting uh, IUD, improvised explosive device, and then the state of Georgia, with moving with extraordinary alacrity for a government bureau, decided to finish the job, and so they knocked down with explosives all of the Georgia Guidestones, claiming that there was some kind of public... Uh, safety or hazard involved, and so they had to be eliminated. Needless to say, I find that just a tad, shall we say, suspicious. So without further ado, um, let me switch now to our main topic of the evening and our two initial guests, Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. And what you want to do is you want to click on bios under the... Uh, um, uh, fast links there under the banner at the top of the guest page. Um, Scott Walter is very, very well known. He's a forensic geologist, best known as the host of the History Channel's hit show, America Unearthed, which follows him on his quest to uncover the truth behind controversial historical artifacts and sites found throughout North America and beyond. He also co-hosted History's Pirate Treasure, of the Knights Templar about late 17th century pirate shipwrecks, Freemasons, and the Ninth Templar. And uh, his whole bio there is on the uh, other side of Midnight uh, uh, guest page. So without further ado, Scott, come on down. Unner un unmuting helps. Unearthing and unmuting. 
Hello. Okay, I hear you clicking, but I don't hear any words. Oh, this is not good. This is definitely not good. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to Barbara and see if she is on board. Barbara, are you, are you with us? Can you hear me? I can hear you five by. We just <laughs> we just can't hear Scott. <laughs> uh, that was a problem when I first came on just before the show, so maybe he just needs to click out and be called again on Skype. Yeah. Keith, can you do that, please? So I guess we're going to have four minutes here till the bottom of the hour to talk about anything we want to. Where, where would you like to dive in, given that we're going to be truncated at the bottom of the hour? Are you talking to me? Mm-hmm. There's only you and me here. <laughs> well, I'm sure Scott will be back. Um, I know that you wanted to uh, to go next to him to talk about the uh, destruction of the Georgia Guidestones by explosives, which has which was kind of uh, piggybacked onto a show that was supposed to be about ancient Egypt and ancient Scotland and modern Scotland. But um, so I'm not going to talk about that because I'll leave that to you. But I will, um, as a kind of uh, preface to my part of the my main part of the show, that where I will be going through my items to tell the incredible story of the central connection of ancient Egypt, in particular, according to the best scholarship that I'm aware of. Uh, Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their eldest daughter, whose Egyptian name was Meritaten, um, who, according to the best scholarship I'm aware of, uh, uh, left left Egypt and uh, went uh, in a boat uh, into the Mediterranean Sea, probably not intending to end up in Ireland, but they did, probably by a storm. Um, and Skoda... Uh, and her sons um, founded uh, the dynasties of the royalty in Ireland, and the Stone of Destiny, also known as Scotus Stone, uh, became the coronation stone of the ancient Scottish, the ancient Irish kings at Tara, and then it was taken from Ireland to the Isle of Iona where it was uh, eventually in the possession there of St. Columba, the patron saint of Scotland, from where it was then taken to the Scottish mainland, and eventually to Stone Scone Palace in Perthshire, in the heart of Scotland. Um, and it was then became the coronation stone of all of the Scottish kings up until 1296. And that stone is central to... Scotland's dream of finally becoming independent, which could happen as early as this, as December of 2023 next year. So that's the preface to what I'll be talking about. Hmm, that's a very good preface. Um, I d still don't see if we have any joy on Scott. We have a break coming up at the bottom of the hour. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, uh, pause for that, and then hopefully on the other side we will have Scott with us. And if we don't. It's going to be you and me, kid. <laughs> well, he'll come in eventually, but there's what would happen if he doesn't come right on is we would go to what the show was going to originally be before the Georgia Guidestones were blown up. Well, they're not much of a diversion, as you will see. <laughs> so without further ado, you're on the other side of midnight. My guests this morning to start off are Scott Walter, who's floating around out there somewhere in the ether. And Barbara Honiger and uh, Georgia Lambert's going to join us in the third hour. And as you can hear in the background, we thought tonight we would play some of my favorite, favorite music. I love bagpipes. And I never get to play them because we rarely talk about Scotland. As I said in the promo that I wrote this morning for the show, is it possible, except for a wee twist of fate, that tonight we'd all be known as Scottish men and women and not Americans? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to The Other Side of Midnight on this Saturday, July 9th, 2022. I believe we have solved our communications problems with Scott. Scott, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me, Richard? I can hear you five by. And Barbara's still with us? Yes. There we are. Okay. Okay, I guess I'm good. Okay, you are good to go. Um, Gosh, I'm really enjoying the idea that we're going to have you know, two and a half hours, maybe a little less to kind of talk this morning. Uh, let me start with the Guidestone thing, given that you actually had been there. And for both people who haven't followed the story, to me, it's kind of ap- emblematic of everything is happening at once. And this is something that no one that I'm aware of would have ordered. But I'm, I'm, I'm not so much dismayed by the uh, sabotage as I am by the incredibly swift action of the state of Georgia to kill the rest of the monument when all they had to do was put, you know, yellow tape around it and try to figure out who the perpetrator was. But of course, now that all the evidence is destroyed, uh, there's a fat chance in tracking down whoever did this. Thoughts? Well, I, I agree with you. I find it to be more than a little suspicious um, <clears throat> you know, it's, 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 it's funny because, um, you would think that first and foremost, if you have a crime that was committed like that, the first thing you do is you seal off the area. If you're law enforcement and you bring in an investigative team that could, you know, look for things like footprints. Um, I'm not sure if there's anything, um, footprint, uh, fingerprints, um, well, there is, there is apparently video of a car and activity and people driving away. And, you know, it's like the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, like the FBI, is kind of at the top of its uh, field. So the idea that the GBI team didn't move in to try to figure out who did this and they just the state just decided to destroy the whole damn thing, uh, I, I think suspicious is at the lower end of my reaction. Well, well, I'm trying to be diplomatic and, you know, get to where I, I, you know, what I've already concluded. But but the point is, is that this is not how an investigation into a crime is handled. And to come in there and just destroy everything and haul it off and, and dump it somewhere is, to me, uh, a, a crime in itself because first of all it looked to me from the photos the the initial photos that even though one of the four major slabs with the inscriptions had been destroyed the monument was still standing and you know i i understand it probably was somewhat unstable but we don't know we'll never know because nobody nobody no engineer went in and looked at it as far as i know and then the other thing is, if you're not going to try to rebuild it, which you would think if something is, you know, attempted to be destroyed like that, 
you'd think about doing because it does impact the economy of this area, which is very rural and I'm sure was probably the main attraction in the area. So it does affect other people. But the other thing is, why not salvage those slabs and put them in a museum? I mean, it becomes part, part of, of the, the history of this site. Yes, exactly. And so the fact that they didn't even consider any of these things tells me that there's there's more going on here. And look, I, you know, I'm open to, well, <laughs> I try to I try to be careful when it comes to conspiracies, but this one just screams of larger forces at work. I don't think this is some guy that you know is is a is a, a religious zealot that you know thought this was the devil's work. I think there's I think there's a group of people that thought that that put this whole thing together. I, I'm I'm convinced of that until I see evidence to the contrary. Do we know what county this? in Georgia was uh, built, created? You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I can tell you that there isn't a lot there. It's about 100 miles, I think, outside of... Um, Atlanta? Atlanta, I think, yeah. I mean, we were down there back in 2013. I was looking at some of the pictures we took when we filmed that episode, and I really enjoyed that particular episode. I... I found the stones to be fascinating and certainly of no threat at all. But, you know, Richard, one of the things that has really puzzled me in all the articles I've read since, you know, the monument was destroyed two days ago, nobody has said, said one word about the context of the time when these stones were put up and why they were put up and what the message was intended to convey, why the message was written. Nobody has talked about that. Certainly nobody has considered that who is behind this heinous act. And I just find that astounding. I mean, do you know what the context is of why these things were built and why the message is what it is? Well, from the whole creation, this monument was cloaked in secrecy at several different levels. And there's apparently a code name of something R. Christensen, who was... R.C. R.C. Christian. Christian, okay. Who was ostensibly the, the, the donor and the, the, the driving force behind it. But other than it being a kind of an ecological message and, a, you know, can we all get along... Um, the idea that this would cause such passions on the part of somebody, they would risk jail time, knowing, of course, that there were 24-7 uh, cameras rolling. They apparently had a previous incident of a much milder uh, import, and so they put in cameras. A lot of good it did, did this. But what I don't understand is, after you have an act of vandalism, I mean, this would be like the Smithsonian dynamiting the rest of an exhibit because... They don't really care to find out who who defaced it. It's 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 bizarre. <laughs> well, it's 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 bizarre on one hand, but it's it's perfectly um, understandable on another. Let let me go back to the context. You know, this guy R. C. Christian, which of course was a was a pseudonym. That that's not his real name, right? Um, and we do, and, and there's a lot of speculation about who the person was. Um, some people believe that it was a uh, a person that lived in Iowa and and passed away a few years ago, but you know the time when these were put up was 1980, and we were still in the Cold War, and I remember these times very well as I'm sure you do too. There was a lot of of talk and a lot of fear about nuclear war, and the context of the stones and the message behind the stones was that if there was a nuclear war and the human race survived, that the Georgia Guidestones, the message that's carved in several languages, was supposed to be guide guidelines for the race that survived to 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 live and survive, uh, survive going forward. And so when you look at the thing that's got everybody bent out of shape, well, there's actually two things. One is the keep the population at 500,000, or excuse me, 500, 500 million, million. yeah. 500 million. <clears throat> you know, this is what gets, you know, 
everybody everybody bent out of shape. And I've read things where people said, well, this this monument says that there's going to be eradication of seven and a half billion people. I mean, where do they come up with that? It does not say that. Um, if you understand the context, you would never even go to that. Well, what's so ironic is we have not been as close to all-out global thermonuclear war since these stones were put in place. Putin tonight, Ukraine, all it takes is one errant message and we're really in it. And to me, the coincidence of destroying this Stonehenge time capsule in, in, the, in the light of what's going on geopolitically right now on Earth tonight, I think they would, could possibly be connected. And then the rapidity where they were eradicated by an official government as opposed to investigating an obvious crime. Barbara, let me come to you because there are such overtones of the whole 9-11 scenario and the steel shipped to China and all that after the trade towers came down. I find eerie, eerie parallels. You mean eerie par parallels to the destruction of the Guidestones? Yep. Well, um, yes, I guess you could go there. Um, as you know, <laughs> I've been a leader of the 9-11 Truth Movement for over 20 years, and I'm now the uh, chairman of the board, co-chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Um, which is really the most important organization for 9-11 Truth on the planet. And we are very, very clear that the evidence overwhelmingly supports that 9-11 was a self-attack. Um, I know Scott doesn't like to hear that. Uh, he, he told me that in Scotland, but it's, <laughs> it's a fact. And uh, given that, um, I think there are parallels uh, because there were pre-placed explosives both in the World Trade Center towers, in the Pentagon, and also at the Georgia Guidestones. See, the so, parallel I see is inside, inside jobs screaming from both events. Because you don't get this whole thing destroyed by the, by the government of Georgia without very high level, get rid of it, get rid of it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's something we don't want to talk about. Just get rid of it and make a public safety claim. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's the parallel as I see it. But, but go ahead, back, back to Scott, until we get into the meat of today's program. Okay. Um, all right. Let me, let me shift gears here. You guys just went on an extraordinary experience, um, looking over, walking through, visiting, having dinner in a series of remarkable middle evil monuments and castles and other uh, um, objects there in Scotland. Um, how did you guys? How did you guys meet and wind up going on this tour together? Uh, you want me to answer that first? Or yeah, sure, Scott? sure. Well, I don't think Scott knows this, but it was quite a quite a synchronicity. And uh, you know, I got my master's degree studying synchronicity, and the first ever graduate, fully accredited graduate program in the United States or the world, and. Uh, consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology, so I'm into synchronicity big time. Um, there was quite a synchronicity, and that is my partners here in California, in the Monterey Peninsula of California, my partner's best friend for, you know, decades of its life, and we're in our 70s, um, uh, Rob, who lives in Pennsylvania, who's probably listening to the show tonight, we've alerted him to it, um, Rob let Danny know uh, about this tour. Because he was hoping to go on it. Ah. And then he couldn't go on it. I won't go into the private details of that. But he had sent us, he'd sent Danny, who showed me, uh, the flyer, uh, which is um, the banner for the show on the homepage uh, tonight for this show uh, is taken from that flyer. So I got the flyer and I saw it and I said, oh, well, that's only about, I don't know, it's only about two and a half weeks away. I really want to go on that. <laughs> so I called up, uh, I, I emailed Haley, and she immediately got back and she said, yes, there's still a few seats in the van, and we would love to have you. Um, so I went. I mean, I turned the world upside down to be there. <laughs> and I will, I will let you know that um, Scott and Haley were just wonderful guides. 
I mean, talk about the Guidestones. They were wonderful guides. <laughs> it was a great, great, great tour. I highly recommend it. Anything that Scott and or Haley do, or Scott or Haley do together, I highly recommend. And hopefully on the show, Scott will let us know what, what's planned in, in the future for tours. Yeah, let me go back to Scott. <laughs> Scott, I yeah. didn't know, in addition to your television career and that really fascinating uh, program and I'm not a big fan of mainstream television but they apparently let you follow your nose and your head and your instincts and it really is you know must-see television I didn't know you had this other you know tour thing going talk about how that came up and when are you going to be doing it here in the United States well, I, you know, I, I have to give all credit to Haley because it was her idea to do this. And, you know, it was it was right up my alley because I'm doing quite a bit of research now. And hopefully if things work out, we'll, we'll be doing some type of a, uh, a production either on television, uh, maybe on cable, maybe streamed. I, I don't know. We'll see. But it has to do a lot with Knights Templar. And a big part of the story of the Templars and their eventual uh, making um, making their way to North America obviously takes place in Scotland. And so a lot of the places that we went were uh, in the vein of that story. And uh, it was it was absolutely fantastic. We had some wonderful surprises that happened. And, you know, I just want to go back and and and, you know, say kind of echo what Barbara said, we had a fabulous group. I mean, it really was a great group of people. As, as Barbara knows, everybody got along great. There weren't, there, you know, whenever you get a group of 10 or more people together, it seems like there's always one or two that sort of, um, you know, everybody kind of says, oh gosh, it's them. Mm. And we didn't, we, we didn't have any of that. And Barbara, you know what I'm talking about. Everybody got along. We yeah. had a great time. And even when, you know, we had to kind of uh, freewheel it, you know, like when we couldn't get over to, to um, um, uh, oh, God, where was it? O Oban? Oban. Uh, uh, we couldn't get there because of no, weather. No, 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 Iona. The, the, Iona, the, Iona, the, that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And um, the weather was so bad. I mean, we almost made it, but we decided not to go because we didn't know if we'd get back. Is this an but island? Really Is this an island? Yeah, off it was an island. In an island. Oh, so in bad weather, you do not want to take a small cabin cruiser in a choppy sea. No. Well, no. Even, they wouldn't even let the large uh, ferry go. <laughs> No, it was a large ferry, and it was wicked. The wind was blowing, the waves were crashing, and it was. I wasn't uh, wild about going. So, over was there. this the first tour you've ever led, Scott? Yes, it is. Yes. Oh my God, we're in at the birth of something. See, I didn't know that. I thought you'd done a whole bunch of them, Scott. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I've I've taken people out in the field, and I've certainly done my share of hosting. Right. Uh, you know, television show, but no, this was the first time I had done a tour and oh my. Um, it was Haley's brainchild. And, you know, I was, it, it worked out great. Um, I, I would I, like to add, if I could, that um, uh, I, I took the liberty, Scott, of uh, sending Keith Morgan, who's the producer for the show tonight, yeah. uh, for the other side of midnight. I took the liberty of sending him the detailed itinerary for the tour, which he's okay. now made um, one of your items along with the Georgia Guidestones photos. Okay. So everybody Wonderful. should go there. Maybe, Richard, you want to tell people how to go there and see all the incredible places that Haley and Scott uh, went with us on this tour uh -oh. that was on June 5th to 12th. Okay, well, I'm clicking on his items. Uh, yeah. Yes, we've got Guidestones. It should be close to the top, actually, I think. Oh, no. no. Well, Barbara, yeah, let me ask you this. Oh, here we are. Yeah, it, 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 it's item number one. Scotland mm -hmm. Tour Itinerary. Yeah, just click on uh, click on the the, uh, the word Scotland Tour Itinerary, and hopefully, uh, well, it didn't come up. Um, Keith needs to fix that. Mm, came up for me. Oh, it downloaded. Okay, so for some people, like on my computer, it may download. And you yeah, it says download file in Word, yeah. but I'm Incredible getting... Incredible places. And, uh, yeah. 
maybe yeah. we can talk about some of those places. I expect Scott will do that. But Scott, you were going to say something. I was going to ask you what was your favorite favorite place. Well, when I get into my part of the show here, my, the meat of everything, the core, um, it had to be Scone Palace. And the reason is, as, as I think you know, I focus on the ancient Egyptian connection to Maritime right. uh, Skoda, after whom Scotland is named, and of course, the stone of Scone is also called Skoda Stone, on which the uh, ancient Irish kings were crowned at Terra. And it was brought to the sacred isle of Iona, where unfortunately we couldn't go because of the weather. Um, but I, I, I did go to Iona Ona back on my honeymoon in 1994 in oh July. Oh my gosh! Yeah, you know, I've, I've been to almost all the places, almost all the places on this tour, but not all. All right, I'll tell you what, uh, Scott. Let me start with Barbara because I want to start chronologically. Because when I was writing the promo last night, it really struck me that if it hadn't been for this weird little twist of fate we could have been Scotsmen. And <laughs> and uh, George Washington, who, of course, had a Scottish background, could have been the father of his country, but it would have been not America, but New Scotland or Nova Scotia, you know, writ large all over the continent. And, and that, to me, is amazing because if you trace the lineage back then, it would mean, yeah. if this is documented research, Barbara, that in some level we're ancient Egyptians. Yeah. And, and, the, yeah. and the bizarre thing that I made note of is, and I kind of noticed this many years ago, there are so many accoutrements and attachments of the founding fathers to ancient Egypt, up to and including, and I'll bet not one person in a million knows this, the very title president you know, which is the head of state of the United States of America, and now by imitation, a lot of other nations around the world. But the very name president, the title president in ancient Egyptian means first of the Westerners, meaning the those who have gone before, those who were no longer in three dimensions, those who are part of the landscape of the Giza Plateau and the pyramids to the west of the Nile. And so when you said that, and this goes back to uh, Scotia and Nefertiti, and he, in other words, let's start there. How yeah. the heck did Nefertiti, daughter, wind up in Scotland? And how did a Queen Scota wind up giving her name to an entire island kingdom at a time when her real name in Egypt was something totally different. Right. Well, I'd like to begin, if I could, um, with how I got into this absolutely phenomenal history to begin with that totally blew my mind and took my life. You know, if you can think of your life uh, when you're born going on a particular track and then there's, uh, you know, the railroad guy who pulls a switch and suddenly you're on an entirely different track. <laughs> well, yes. that's what happened when I saw, I came into possession in the early 1990s, into the possession of the physical coronation program, which I still have, of Queen Victoria's successor to the crown of Great Britain and the whole, you know, British Commonwealth. And I came into the possession of it, which is a phenomenal synchronicity, because my husband, who is a saint, who was, he's deceased, was a St. Clair. His name was Professor Dr. Richard St. Clair Murray, or Richard Clair Murray. Hmm. So he came into the possession of this coronation program of Queen Victoria's successor king over the whole British Empire in, I think it was 1902, was the coronation uh, year. Um, and this coronation program, the very first paragraph with the big embossed letter on the inside of the program, the outside of the program, of course, just says it's the program and what it's the program for. You open it up and at the very top left, it says in words that the authority and the legitimacy of the monarch you are about to see crowned comes from the stone in the chair. Hmm. I mean, that blew my mind. I said, what? <laughs> I, I had to read it out loud to Richard. It was then my fiance. Um, 
about five times. I said, am I, am I reading this correctly? I handed the program to him. He said, yes, you're reading it correctly. And it started my life on an entirely new track, all about ancient Egypt and Scotland, all of it. So anyway, that's, uh, and by the way, they had the program. My husband inherited the program from his father, who had inherited it from my husband's grandfather. And the reason they had it is that Richard's grandfather took his father, who was an only child, an only son and an only child, um, to Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, for the coronation because they were invited. And there's another story in that because my husband, my husband's grandfather was one of the many illegitimate grandsons of Queen Victoria by her very promiscuous sons when they were young men. Um, so anyway, so if everybody could go to my items, I'm going to lay out this phenomenal story as quickly as I can because I'm going to end, I'm going to end with where most of the research about the Templars or the core research about the Templars of Scott and everything that he does then takes off. Because the story that we begin with goes back to the mid-1300s B.C. And, and the Templar story that Scott's going to tell us about um, gets really kicked off almost exactly the same amount of time, A.D., Okay, we've got about two minutes till the top of the hour, so set okay. up the premise. Okay, um, so what we're going to do after the top of the hour, everybody needs to go to my items, and you want to tell people how to do that? You go to the banner for tonight's show for Saturday, uh, Scotland on Earth, click on that, that will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, there are fast links to items, click on Barbara, that will take you to her item number one. Right, okay, so... I'm going to um, set the scene here um, with item number one just before the break, and it looks like three minutes. And what you are seeing in item number one is the coronation chair of every single king and queen of the British Empire. Um, e every single one of them after the year 1296. That's a very long time ago. And you will see that there is a stone right under the seat of that coronation chair, which the chair is in Westminster Cathedral, Westminster Abbey in London. And that is where the coronations take place. Um, and that stone has many names. One of the names of the stone is the Stone of Destiny. The other one is Skoda Stone. Now, Skoda is spelled S-C-O-T-A. Sometimes it's spelled S-C-O-T-I-A. And Skoda was the uh, eldest daughter, the crown princess of the most famous pharaoh of ancient Egypt, Pharaoh Akhenaten, and his queen wife, uh, high wife Nefertiti. And that stone was taken by Skoda and an entourage on ships into the Mediterranean out of Gibraltar and ended up in Ireland, where it became the coronation stone of the ancient Irish kings at Tara. And it went to Iona, the famous sacred Scottish Isle of Iona, where St. Columba was, became the patron saint of all of Scotland. Um, depending upon which scholarship you follow, the one that I do, um, uh, St. Columba took the stone and his um, followers also later took his reliquary. Yeah. Okay, Barbara, we have to pause. My guests this morning are Scott Walter and Barbara Honiger. Georgia Lambert's joining us in the third hour. We're playing Scottish music, bagpipes tonight, uh, in honor of this extraordinary deep dive into both ancient and slightly more modern Scottish history. Could we be ancient Egyptians by way of Scotland? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows 
that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>